Good morning. Glad you're all here. Uh, Labor Day weekend, yeah? So people are out doing their thing this weekend. Uh, but I'm glad we're here. This morning, we're going to finish the teaching series that we've been in for the last, well, for the summer, essentially. We've entitled it, Where the Wind Blows, which is a phrase taken out of the book of John, Gospel of John, chapter 3, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, how one enters his kingdom, and what it means to be born again. And he describes the Holy Spirit like the wind. Um, You can hear it. You can see its effects. You can experience it. um, But you don't necessarily see where it's coming from or where it's going. The Holy Spirit is a bit elusive in that way. Um, It's not... God can't be put in a box. The Holy Spirit can't be controlled or manipulated or expected to perform on command. The Holy Spirit is God who lives in us and who leads us. And it's how we experience the reality of God's presence in our lives. It's what makes God's love real, not just an idea. So we've spent all summer talking about that. And then this morning we're going to finish... Um, Not by going back to the book of Acts, but actually skipping over one book to the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Romans chapter 14. I'm going to read one short excerpt. And then we'll go from there. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter... Of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your kingdom is not a matter of eating or drinking, it's not a matter of routine or just doing the right actions. Rather, it is all about righteousness peace and joy that is a reality through your spirit with us and in us. Lord, this morning I pray that as we consider uh, your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we might receive from you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Let me begin with a question this morning. We're going to come back to this question a few times this morning. What do you do when a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, who also has the Holy Spirit living in them, is acting or thinking in a way that is at odds with your own conviction from God, particularly regarding matters of holiness, sin, truth, Etc. Um, let me qualify everything I'm about to say by first saying this. Um, this message is not a um, reaction to any sort of recent event. Um, it's not like damage control. It's not, it, this is actually a message that I'd planned on preaching for a couple of months. Um, but it's one of these messages where it, it's, for some of you in this room, it's going to feel like, oh, goodness, he's, like, he's talking to me. He's referring to that conversation that we had. 
Um, that's probably going to be true for several of you in this room because that's the nature of this morning's message. Um, it's actually a teaching that I have been preparing for probably about 10 years now, um, which is mean it's going to be quite long this morning. So <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> that's, that's the problem with, with having too much time to prepare. Um, but this is a teaching that has been at least a decade in the making. Um, and I could tell you story after story after story of why that's true and how that's come about. But I just want you to know that that's, that's where this is coming from this morning. This just happens to be like the perfect ending to a whole summer series talking about the Holy Spirit. How do we do family that's radically uh, different, unlike how people who don't have the Holy Spirit living in them, who don't know of God's love, do family. How do we do family different? If the kingdom of God, as it's expressed in local churches, if the kingdom of God isn't merely a matter of eating or drinking, and we'll, we'll unpack that, like what does that have to do with anything? If the kingdom of God isn't merely a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, that is like rightly ordered relationships with God and each other, and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, what does that look like as we actually work it out in very practical, real life, daily, relational terms? Or more specifically, what do we do when a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, who also has the Holy Spirit living in them, is acting or thinking in a way that is at odds with your own conviction from God? I.e., how do we be the family of God with healthy relationships, living in peace and joy when conflict happens, when we're not seeing eye to eye, when tensions rise, when the ebbs of flow of culture and politics and society are such that it gets hard to live in good relationship and peace and joy. So how do we do that? How do we do it? And secondly, why is this so important? We'll begin with the why. Um, the passage that I just read, Romans 14, 17, or the excerpt from the passage, ends like this. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be reading a lot of Bible this morning, which if you've ever taken like a class on how to preach good, um, that's like apparently a bad idea. I don't care, all right? If you get bored by me reading too much Bible, uh, just repent, and we'll pray for you. <laughs> no, but seriously, um, it's going to be heavy. It's going to be, not heavy as in like depressing heavy, but like there's going to be a lot of text this morning, so just a heads up, okay? Get, get yourself in that space. Romans 15, this is the end of the passage, verses 5 through 7. This is a prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement... May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The world will know that we are God's kids by the way we love one another, not by the way we bicker or judge one another. The church, the family of God, is potentially either the greatest or most undermining witness to the reality of God's grace abounding in the lives of imperfect people. This is important, figuring out how to do family when tensions rise, when we're not seeing eye to eye, and it feels really personal, is important because as the world looks on, we get to demonstrate what the grace of God looks like worked out in practical terms. And in a local church family. And if we do it well, God is glorified. We bear witness to the reality of God's grace, which abounds where there's brokenness, where there's sin, where there's hard things. Or, and I hate, I hate to say this, we become the worst witness. Because the world looks on at the church and is like, man, you all are... Your quote-unquote church family is worse than mine. That's, that's amen or oh my. That's reality. So it's really, really important that as a church family, we grow. We learn how to love each other and work through difficult things well so that God is glorified. So that the world looks on and says, man, you guys do family different. Um, explain yourself, defend yourself, get, give an answer for why. How? Okay, so that's the why for the glory of God, to put it simply. Now, let's talk about how we do this. How can the family of God do family well? Romans 14, let's go back to the beginning. So we've looked at a middle bit, we've looked at the end, now we're going to go all the way back to Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him or her, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. <clears throat> um, I'll explain food in just a minute, because you may still be wondering, like, what on earth does this have to do with, like, 21st century life in Portland. Eating food? Who's fighting about eating food? Although I did hear someone sort of cough when it says the weak only eat vegetables. Is that like a little like told you so vegans? I, I don't know. <clears throat> That's bad, bad theology. Um, I'll remem I remember this first point becoming so real to me in a meeting I had with a very good friend of mine, this was back in London some time ago, um, but I remember it like it was yesterday. John and I was his name, nice guy, 
awesome, awesome, passionate man of God um, appear. We were having this discussion, which was quickly becoming a debate over, I think it, it had something to do with the Holy Spirit. There's a few things that can really like stir up controversy, get the emotions sort of uh, rising in the church. And one of those things is like, how do we understand the Holy Spirit? How do we do spiritual gifts? How does that sort of incorporate into my understanding of salvation? All these like theological things. Um, it, can, it can get sticky quick. So we're talking about this. And we're both uh, sitting in a cafe with our Bibles open. We're looking at a particular passage. And we're reading it. We're going back and forth. We're talking. And he was getting more and more frustrated with me. Because I simply didn't like see his point. We were reading the same text. And just kind of like processing it logically in like very different ways. In retrospect, I think it had a lot to do with like our temperaments, our personalities. It wasn't that like one of us was unable to like think reasonably while the other one was. But we were going back and forth and my buddy John was getting so frustrated with me. And he finally, he stood up and said, Simon, if you would just read the Bible... And I was like, John, we are reading the Bible. It's open right in front of us. I get that you're frustrated that we're, we're not reading it the same way. But I'm, I'm reading the Bible. Point number one. Your conviction may be more of a strongly held opinion. Your deeply held conviction is quite possibly coming from a place of deep faith. It may be more correct or biblical than the one who has weak faith and is very likely not nearly as serious or contentious is the example that we've just been given in Romans, which Paul refers to as a matter of differing opinions, opinions that aren't worth quarreling over. Now, let's talk about the issue of eating or abstaining. One person eats, the other abstains. In the first century, when the church had just gotten off the ground, there were certain issues um, mainly to do with like the coming together of cultures. You had like Jewish Christians, culturally Jewish people who had been practicing a particular way of leaving which in, a particular way of living which included certain dietary uh, codes since like the beginning. Now the gospel is going from Jerusalem into the Gentile world and you have quote-unquote Gentiles, non-Jews, believing that Jesus is the Messiah who died for the sins of the world and came back to life on the third day. Now, they're being included, adopted into the family of God, but culturally, there's major conflict, misunderstandings, debate, and one of those debates had to do with, well, what food glorifies God? What if, as a Gentile, you're eating meat that was sacrificed in 
the temple of an idol, a Roman or a Greek temple. In some cases, uh, this controversy to do with like what's okay to eat or not had to do with a Gentile not only eating meat that was like purchased from uh, a, an idol temple, but they're actually eating food that was prepared in the temple. And there's like issues to do with well, what if someone sees you eating in this temple? What if they, what if they draw certain conclusions that cause them to uh, quote-unquote stumble? And so this is a major major controversy like this is no light thing in fact there's just a few major controversies that come up over and over again in the new testament and this is one of them i mean this is right up there with like which day is considered holy and needs to be set aside as like a special day of observance oh and here's the really really big one and we'll we'll come back to this in just in just a second circumcision this issue of whether or not a Gentile believer needs to be circumcised in order to be considered like a proper member of God's family, this almost split the church right in half. Like this was a matter of salvation. Now, when we hear about these things, you're like, okay, eating certain foods, um, going to church on certain days, and circumcision really like how um how archaic were these people like how like what you know obviously we don't argue about things like this anymore because we're um we're more sophisticated that's what c.s lewis referred to as chronological snobbery the idea that somehow like the ancients were just stupid backwards people and that's just um that's arrogance actually it's thinking that somehow we're, we're like better humans. Uh, maybe in some ways. Um, maybe not in all sorts of other ways. These were major, major controversies. So, your conviction is probably not as contentious or as serious as the issue of food in the first century. That's my first point. And this cannot be overstated. Eating and drinking was a really big deal. This was food and drink that had been used to worship demons. And Paul's instruction was to not quarrel over opinions. Number two. Truth is still important. And love is still an objective reality. The Bible is full of unambiguous and virtually non-debatable truths. There's a lot of them. Things that aren't just open to a debate or personal opinion. The Bible is full of truth. And... When it comes to matters of competing convictions or opposing opinions, whether one partakes or one abstains, what matters most is that you are fully convinced that you are living in honor of the Lord. Romans 14, let's continue. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than the other. 
while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It is possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Do you agree? It's obvious. It is possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. This was often where uh, like debate kicked off between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time. They were doing all the quote-unquote right things, like two to the T. And yet, Jesus was constantly challenging them because they were missing the very heart of God. It's impossible to do all the right morality, all the right religion, to say all the right things, to act all the right ways, and still be wrong. Is it possible to do the wrong thing, but for the right reason? Is it possible to still honor the Lord through the attitude of your heart? Let's talk about circumcision. That seems an obvious place to go. Consider the greatest controversy of the early church. Circumcision. This was a matter of salvation. Okay, this isn't kind of like, hey, we can't really get along. We're, we're, we're fighting over what color to like make the carpet. Like this is, this is about as controversial as it gets. Galatians chapter 5. I told you we were going to read a lot of text. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That's very severe. This is the same apostle who wrote our letter to the Romans. Now, here's something interesting. Um, that was, obviously Paul was quite, he had a very strong conviction. The Jewish Christians were convinced in their own minds that in order to be a true member of God's family, you had to be circumcised. It's the way it had always been. And to be fair, and I don't want to get too caught up in this, um, it wasn't that Paul's opponents believed that circumcision saved you. It's a common misconception. They weren't all legalists. They weren't all hypocrites. They just believed that if you were a true believer, that if you had put your faith in Jesus, then you must be circumcised as a proper outworking of your faith. It was, it was like um, an obligation if you truly were surrendered to Jesus. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. You're mistaken. 
you're wrong. And he's so passionate, he actually takes the issue all the way back to church headquarters in Jerusalem, and they convene the very first church-wide council. It's the Jerusalem Council that took place around 50 AD or CE. They convene, they get all the leaders together to discuss the matter, and they're considering what the Bible says, and they're considering the experience, and they're applying their reason as they reason together, and the conclusion was, we don't need to make the Gentiles get circumcised. Put it in writing, distribute it across the land. Good news. That's good news. If you're a Gentile, if you're a Jew, you're like, oh, whatever. It's, it's done. It's a done deal. But if you're Gentile, that's great. The Jerusalem Council convenes circumcision is not requirement. Which is why in Galatians 5, verse 6, he says this, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So the great controversy is finally decided. They don't have to get circumcised. Because circumcision counts for nothing, whether you are or aren't. That's not the point. What matters is faith, working through love. Now get this. So Acts 15 is where the Jerusalem Council happens, we're told. Acts 16, like verse 1, the very next thing that happens. Paul, he's back on a missionary journey. He meets a young man named Timothy who has a Greek dad, Jewish mom, Greek dad. Timothy is not circumcised, and we're told that the very first thing that Paul does, just after the Jerusalem council ends, Paul has Timothy circumcised for missional reasons. They're traveling through uh, Jewish territory, and Paul knew that it could become a major obstacle, an issue, um, a problem for the sake of mission. And so Paul has Timothy circumcised. After all that, after such a deep conviction, if you get circumcised, I'm telling you, if you require the Gentiles to get circumcised, you're severed from Christ. So play on words. After all of that, he takes Timothy. Timothy, we've got to get you circumcised. But, 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 but Paul, we, we got the letter that says I don't have to get circumcised. Yeah, I know, but we're on mission. And it's really important. To, just trust me because it's not really about that anyway. What it's about is faith in Jesus working out through love. Now, if that doesn't mess with your theology a little bit, you're not paying attention. Let's ask our question again. What do you do when a brother or sister, a fellow Christian who also has the Holy Spirit living in them, is acting or thinking in a way that is seemingly at odds with your own conviction from God. Engage the heart. Is your brother or sister desiring to honor Jesus and obey his teachings according to scripture through their words and actions? Are they fully convinced that they are living in honor of the Lord? Or are they simply acting out of fear, selfishness, or immaturity? 
Are they putting the interest of others before their own? I.e., are they acting in love? Or are they simply doing what they want to do because they have the quote-unquote right in the name of being authentic? Before we begin quarreling over convictions or opinions, very, very strongly held opinions, engage the heart. Engage the heart. Are they fully convinced in their minds that they're actually honoring the Lord? Are they doing the wrong thing, but for the right reasons? Oh, that's complicated. Truth matters, and love is not merely a matter of personal preference. But when we begin by arguing over opinions, we often end up failing to engage the heart. And we must engage the heart because obedience to the truth is little more than ritual unless one is obedient from the heart. See Romans 6.17. Which isn't to say that we only submit to the teachings of Scripture when it feels natural or sincere. It does mean that when it comes to wrestling through conflicting convictions with fellow Christians, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit have far less to do with eating and drinking, partaking or abstaining, and everything to do with the state of one's heart. Amen? You guys with me so far? Do you feel the tension rising? No? Some of you are, no, no tension. Happy, good. Which brings us to uh, point number three. <clears throat> Christian maturity requires an understanding of the truth. But it isn't about becoming more right. It's about becoming more like Jesus. It's about going deeper into his lifestyle of sacrificial love. Romans 14, let's keep going. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of, fill in the blank, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of food, I don't know where the slide went. Have any of the texts been up there? Okay, that's all right. You guys are great listeners. You have Bibles. Do not, for the sake of 
fill in the blank, destroy the work of God. Um, Paul writes about this in his letter to the Corinthians as well, his first letter to the Corinthians. Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I recommend going back and reading those two sections um, in their entirety. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 7. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So take care that this right or conviction of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, knowledge meaning you have some revelation that, is, that allows you to enjoy a freedom that others may not understand. If anyone sees you who have knowledge and their conscience is wounded, then you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If fill in the blank makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I will lay down my life, lest I make my brother stumble. Um, there's two sort of issues, two, two people that Paul is like dealing with here. There's those who are eating meat, partaking, or enjoying a freedom. And then there are those who are looking on who are like, well, hang on a second, what you're doing um, is wounding my conscience this, 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 I feel defiled because, because I have a former association. What you're doing or where you're doing it, it reminds me of like my old life. It reminds me of what God saved me out of. And, but you're enjoying it? it? Defiles my conscience. If you who have knowledge become aware that what you're doing is destroying the work of God, now it's your responsibility to bear with your brother. To lay your life down. If it means building another up. This, is, this gets us right to the heart of Jesus. This, this gets us right to the cross. So. To the one who is offended by the freedom or conviction of their brother or sister, the admonition to them is this. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? If what I'm doing, if the way I'm enjoying my freedom in Jesus causes you to stumble or defiles your conscience because you associate it with idolatry, and now you're judging me? You have no idea what's going on in my heart. All you know is that your actions, my actions offend you. And so now you're passing judgment on me. How dare you judge the servant of another? I will stand before God and he knows where my heart's at. That's a challenge. 
and to the one whose behavior is defiling the conscience of their brother or sister, regardless of who's in the right or wrong, how dare you use your right or freedom or revelation in a way that hurts the one for whom Christ died? The strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. Who's the strong and who's the weak? You almost lose track. We're talking about eating, staining, food that's actually associated with uh, demon worship in idol temples, um, something to do with like certain days being more holy than others, and and then of course circumcision itself, and and in all of these controversial issues where Christians are fighting where deeply held convictions are clashing. Paul says, you who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. Who's the weak and who's the strong? I don't know. You decide. Do you believe that you're more mature? Do you believe that your biblical understanding is better than your brother or sister? Okay, great. Then you are the strong one. You have the obligation to bear with your weak brother or sister, or perhaps it's the other way around. Are you enjoying a particular freedom? Do you have a revelation of God's grace that empowers you to enjoy a lifestyle or an activity or something in a particular way that your brother or sister simply doesn't understand, but they've become aware that you're you're acting a certain way or talking a certain way or enjoying life in a certain way, and now it's causing them to stumble, it's defying defiling their conscience but you know that you are you're right in God's eyes that that makes you the stronger one okay then you have an obligation to bear with your brother or sister the whole thing calls us to deeper humility no one gets to be right while the other's wrong the command is to love Seek to understand, engage the heart, lay your life down that you might build others up. The strong have an obligation to bear with the weak. So if you believe that you're right, then you have the right to enjoy. And if you believe you're right and that you have the right to enjoy some freedom in Christ, then act like Christ and lay down your life. Give up your right and participate in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. There is unspeakable joy in freely laying your life down for the sake of someone who doesn't even deserve it. Jesus freely laid his life down. Not because someone else was projecting their issues on him. He said, I freely lay down my life, and I freely take it up again. I do this in the name of love. God demonstrated his love by dying for us, sinners, on the cross. The one who was wholly right relinquished his rights, laid down his life that we might be built up. This is John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. What do you do when a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, 
who also has the Holy Spirit living in them is acting or thinking in a way that is seemingly at odds with your own conviction from God. You know, someone asked me this question almost like as far as I can remember in those exact terms just a few months ago. The number of times this question gets brought up in all sorts of various forms and words, it's unimaginable. How do we do this? Summary. And then we're done. Number one, take a deep breath. It's usually your anxiety that compels you to see in black or white. Truth matters. But truth must be approached with deep humility. So learn to be okay with being wrong. Your biblical, your biblical conviction may be more of a strongly held opinion than you realize. It could be that you and your brother or sister are both only seeing in part. So take a deep breath. It's okay to be wrong. Number two, engage the heart. Because peace, joy, and rightly ordered relationships don't come about as a result of simply determining who's right and who's wrong. We grow together, we heal together, we repent together when we believe the best and seek to understand one another as opposed to simply quarreling over opinions. Engage the heart. Um, if you ever um, get married or have a friend, you ever get to have a friend, um, you'll find that this goes a long, long way in um, deepening a relationship. Someone's going to say something or act in a particular way where in your mind you're like, oh, it's obvious. It's obvious what they're doing. And their motives are as clear as day. And so before we even begin the conversation, before we even be, seek to understand the other, we've already assumed that we know their heart. We know what they're doing and why. No, you don't. No, you don't. Ask. Do the hard work of engaging the heart. Why are you doing this? Why are you so convinced that somehow this honors the Lord? I don't see it. I don't understand. But I'm choosing to believe the best about you. I'm resisting the temptation to demonize your life, your conviction. Please help me understand. And by the way, that's not one conversation. That's, that's like a, a lifelong journey. You just have to like stay in it. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us harmony. It takes endurance to keep engaging the heart. And lastly, take up your cross. If deep down inside you know you're in the right. Then praise the Lord. <clears throat> he has given you wisdom and grace to act in accordance with his will. Now use that grace to serve others. Not to demand your rights, 
but to relinquish them for the benefit of the weaker brother or sister. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way of peace and joy. This is the way of sacrificial love. This is how the world will know that we are the children of God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we stand together, please? question of application. What do you do with such a, a lecture? Go practice. Worship team. Sooner or later, we will all find ourselves on one side or another. I find that regularly um, things that I say or do will hurt the people around me. And I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm a nice guy. Like, I'm considerate. I, I like to, to put people before myself. And yet the challenge, the invitation, is that I would lay my life down. Not argue to make sure that you understand that I'm right and that I'm really a nice guy and that you're just misunderstanding my motives. Um, But whether you understand or not, whether I'm right or wrong, it is my joy to lay down my life in a way that others would be built up. I can never, ever, ever use my freedom in Jesus as an excuse Um, to see others torn down, to see a weaker brother or sister live with a defiled conscience because they can't understand how that is freedom. Eating meat in a temple full of idols. Not be on the other side. You're like, man, that offends me. That offends me to the core. Let's convene a council. Let's... um, Let's excommunicate. Why don't we ever do that anymore? <laughs> you feel indignant. You feel like truth is being neglected. You feel like we're, we're, we're not, no longer holding to the standard of holiness as it's clearly laid out for us in Scripture. I know that feeling. Whew. In our city, I'm like, man, let's, let's, let's cling to this thing. Let's, let's keep it wide open at all times, always submitting ourselves to the authority of Scripture. I get really passionate about truth, good theology, sound doctrine. If I'm not careful, that conviction of mine can compel me to start judging my brother or sister. And so then the admonishment is to me. Who am I to judge the servant of another? I'm not the judge. They'll stand before God, just like me. 
Let me take a deep breath. <sighs> okay. I also only see in part. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Maybe I got this whole thing twisted. Lord Jesus, give us humility. Give me courage to engage the heart. Maybe we'll discover that God is doing things that, that we, we, we completely look over in our zeal and our passion. Lord, give us patience for one another. Help us to be gentle brothers and sisters who do the hard work of brave conversation as opposed to simply uh, dividing, leaving, withdrawing, lashing out. Help us to be, help us to be your family that's demonstrating righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit as the world looks on. Amen.